you could bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, thank you, Lord, that you're such a wonderful and beautiful God, that you are the triune God, that you are Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are the real God, that you are the God of the Most High. And, uh, Lord, you're our God, and we can call you our God, and we can call ourselves children, and by your grace we can do so. And it's such a blessing, Lord, that it's beyond words. Although we may try with our feeble attempts and these feeble lips to proclaim just exactly how glorious of a state we live in to be called the children of God, the God of the Most High. So, Lord, we pray with great gratitude today, and as we continue uh, our work here through, uh, through Mark, I pray, Father, that your Spirit may be with us in full, that uh, the Spirit, Father, may fill us uh, with its wonder and with its uh, majestic uh, spiritual euphoria, Lord, that you're able to teach us things that are beyond our feeble minds and share with us the mighty wisdom of God. So we pray, Father, that you may fill us in full this day. Amen. Today's sermon is called Ask Questions. And it's a continuation of our series through Mark called Marked. We've been looking at punctuation marks and how that helps us structure the book of Mark. And we are in Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. That's Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. And if you want to read with me. No, no, you don't have to read it out loud. Okay. Just raise your hand when you're done reading. Keep it up. Could you imagine if I preached the whole sermon like that? Well, it's interesting to think about. Like, why don't I preach? I mean, in terms of where we're going in communication, that's how a majority of us actually have conversations. And there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know, off the gist. I don't think there's anything wrong with communicating through text. But it would seem very foreign from a pulpit, would not? Could you imagine if I literally just sat in this chair and that's how I gave the sermon? I mean, in the end, you would still learn stuff, right? be a lot easier for me. I get to sit down in a nice chair. No one ever sits in the front row, so we'd always have one person in the front row. And then I would just sit there and I'd click through and then everybody would leave having learned something, right? But, but I mean, it, like, it wouldn't be a sermon. There's something about the sermon, about the proclamation of the gospel, about preaching the word of God, about hearing the word of God preached that is very fundamental to this act. The very act of communication. Now, I would argue that our ability to communicate, this is one of the things you know, we've been thinking through in this sermon series, is that our ability to communicate 
is one of the essential things about us being human. It is at the core of being a human being is being able to communicate, communicating with one another. And that's why we used, one of the reasons why we looked at punctuation marks. At the core of punctuation marks is our ability to communicate, to tell people what we're trying to say, because people can get things confused. And we saw that the reason punctuation marks came about was because it helps us pronunciate. So they had these three um, apes, and they were trying to teach these apes. Um, they were like trying to culture these apes. So they were trying to teach them how to communicate. In specific, they wanted to see what they could do with questions. And basically, they got to the point where these apes were able to answer questions. You know, where? What? So they would say, what is the banana? And you know, they would condition the ape to learn how to answer the question by saying, you know, this over here. Through, you know, through a method of hand gestures and vocal commands, they could teach them. But you know what the one thing they could never teach the apes to do was to ask a question. You could never teach, them, teach the apes to ask a question. And then I'm noticing that this now, especially with Lottie, as she's almost two years old, now she's really beginning to ask questions in her own way. They don't extend beyond one word but the first question she asked was, well, the first question she learned to ask was, more? More? Hmm? Can I have more? I mean, she's asking me a question, and she wants an answer. And the answer would be, yes, here you go, food. And my favorite question that she has is when you know, I'm nowhere around, and you could just hear her saying, Papa? 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 You know? And she just keeps going, Papa? Papa? Until Papa walks into the room. She's saying, where are you, Papa? Where are you? So we've looked at questions, but it's really interesting. There's so many different ways to ask a question. There's so many different types of questions. In the English language, we have WH words, like who, what, where, when, why. They all start with WH because they're telling you that they're interrogative questions. They're going to ask something from you. Um, another type of question are yes, no questions. I can ask you something where the response is yes or no. I can ask you a question that you're not supposed to answer. Am I right? That was a rhetorical question. You didn't have to answer that. That was an example. Right? And then there's questions that may ask you for a specific word, questions that you answer with questions. Um, and then there's even ways to show that something is a question in English. So in English, what you can do is you can accent the last word, and people will realize it's a question. In other words, I can say, did you eat the banana? And you know that's a question versus, did you eat the banana? Just accenting that. Or another really interesting thing that they do with questions is that they reverse the order so the subject comes after the verb. So why are we talking about questions? Well, because we're going to look at how, I mean, we've been looking at questions, but we've talked a little bit about the other side, the other fundamental side of questions, which are answers, responses. And in today's sermon, we're going to talk about specifically prayer and that aspect of questioning, which is the answer the response. So if you could turn with me, our passage is Mark chapter 11. We're going to go past the triumphal entry, and we're going to go into this episode with a fig tree, the fig bush, right? So here we are, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, if you want to read with me. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. That's an interesting response. 
You know, whenever I go to my fridge and I open it up and there's like no meat to make a sandwich, that's exactly what I say. May nobody ever eat from you again, you ridiculous fridge. How dare you? How dare you? I don't care if it's not the season for sandwiches and it's 3 a.m. in the middle of the night. How dare you? No, I don't do that. But it's really interesting. Is Je- does Jesus have a temper here? He goes up to this fig tree and it doesn't have any figs for Jesus. And Jesus is just like, you know what? You know, I, mean, no, I'm, I, I curse you. Well, mm, not quite. Let's break the passage down a little bit. First of all, fig tree. Fig trees are symbolic from the Old Testament. They were usually a metaphor that related to um, the judgment of Israel. The judgment of Israel in, Old, in the Old Testament. You can see that in places like uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. And um, Joel chapter 1, verse 7. So he goes in here and says, this is the thing that I, get, get, that I think gets really interesting. He goes in there and after he recognizes, okay, there's this fig tree, there's strong symbolism there. He notices that he found nothing but leaves. All he found on this fig tree were leaves. What was it missing? It was missing the fruit. The fruit. It was fruitless. And what's occurring here to note is that this is a visual parable. Remember how we had a whole sermon on parables? Remember Jesus was teaching in parables? Could you guys remember any of the parables he taught? The seed, yeah, he taught about the mustard seed. He taught about the parable of the sower. Remember how the different different grounds that uh, the seed gets thrown on? He had the parable of the light. But here we have a visual parable. So Jesus goes up, here's this fig tree, it represents judgment, and he sees that there's no fruit on it, and he says, may nobody ever eat from you ever again. We have this cursing of the fig tree. And in other words, what this is being symbolized here is this judgment upon Israel for being fruitless. For having fallen into enjoying this type of ritualism and legalism that they had gone back to all throughout the Old Testament narrative. I mean, that's a story that you see, a refrain that you see repeated over and over and over again, is that God goes and saves the Israelites and they return right back to their ritualistic worship. And here we see Jesus cursing this fig tree, and it's giving us this symbolism. We've seen this type of symbolism of, you know, Jesus acknowledging this type of hypocritical worship among the Israelites in other passages. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6 to 7, he's responding to a question about why his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat, as was customary. He's like, well, why, you know, they were trying to trap him. You remember how the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to trap him all these questions? This was one of those scenarios where they're like, why don't, your disciples wash their hands before they eat. That's unclean. And Jesus responded by saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Or, I mean, you could think of this other passage too. Remember when in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching parables and he uses salt? Do you guys remember what he says about salt? That we're supposed to be like salt. And what happens if salt isn't salty? And I'm a big fan of salt. So if I had saltless salt, I mean, what would I do with it? I would throw it out. Right? Throw it out. I mean, it's good for nothing. Saltless salt is good for nothing. Or I'll put it in a more, uh, a more contemporary context. How many of you guys in the Philippines had a mango tree? Right? I had a mango tree. Well, we loved having this mango tree. I mean, there's nothing like a mango tree. Like you can just pull mangoes off and you can eat them. Delicious. Almost as good as our avocado tree. But if I had a mango tree that had no mangoes, what would my mango tree be good for? Nothing. Maybe shade. Maybe. 
you know, maybe I could chop it down and make some wood. But it's a mango tree. If it's not giving me any mangoes, I can take any other tree, and it will do the same thing. It's not giving me the mangoes that I want. Even worse is if it was a tree that the only mangoes it gave me were rotten mangoes. That would be the worst. So what do we see here? First, we have the direct parallel here. The direct context of the, of, of the, of the parable is that Jesus is basically saying in this visual parable that judgment is coming against, the, um, against Israel because they are fruitless. But in specific, why I think it's interesting that he uses uh, the terminology here about, you know, that, that the gospel writer uses the terminology of finding nothing but leaves. I mean, it was still pretending to be a fig tree. You know, this little fig bush. It had the leaves and everything. So from far away, it looked like it was going to be this fig plant, but when Jesus got to it, it was fruitless. And this introduces an important aspect of discipleship and prayer and communication that we're going to really focus on today, and that is this word. And you can tell me what it means. You can tell me what it is in, in Tagalog, but hypocrisy. You guys got a word for hypocrisy in Tagalog? Do you have more than one? Plastic. 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 I think the German. I think the German word has to do with like wax nose. It's like a nose that you can like pull any other way. But hypocrisy. I mean, I you know from my Cuban background, that is a word that we are very familiar with. Everyone's a hypocrite. You know, got like a million words for hypocrisy. But I was thinking about hypocrisy, and hypocrisy is a is a pretty big sin in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus talks about hypocrisy a lot. Even in this context, what we have here is a fig tree, or a bush. No, it's a tree. There you go. A fig tree. We have a fig tree that has the leaves, but it doesn't have the fruit. It's almost as if the fig tree is hiding in this appearance. So the word for hypocrisy from the Greek means under-faced, like, like you're wearing a mask, you know, and you're speaking through this mask. It was a word that was associated with actors, whenever actors... You know, back in antiquities would act, they would wear these masks because only men would act, so they had to portray the different genders. But, you know, the, the term comes from the delivery through a mask. In other words, you're sitting there in the audience, the actor is not really that person. The actor is not that person. The actor is pretending to be that person. So that's where this word hypocrisy comes from. So what we see here, our first understanding of hypocrisy is that it has this meaning of hiding. And in particular, as applicable to the Christian experience, hypocrisy is the incident where someone is trying to maintain the appearance of being a Christian, but they don't do anything. Now, that's different from our second definition that we're going to get to in our next passage, which is saying you're going to do one thing and then doing the other. The first understanding here that we're getting, the second sense of this passage, seeing just these leaves, you know, he's hiding behind this fig tree, but there's no fruit. And Jesus is seeing here one of the reasons that Israel is coming under judgment is that you know, they're hiding under the title Israel, but they're not doing the things, you know, they're not believing in the God, they're not you know, worshiping God and doing these things that they were designed to do. But one of the things I thought was really interesting about hypocrisy as a sin, because whenever you, know, you read these sins, there's a real good reason why God tells you not to do something. I've learned that. I've learned it to be a truth. I learned that to be a truth at the level of a PhD student studying ethics, and then I learned that to be the truth at the level of my daughter doing something that's not good for her. So I began thinking, well, what is it about hypocrisy that is such a bad sin? What does hypocrisy do? And I started thinking, especially as we're going to get into this discussion on prayer, is that what hypocrisy does 
is hypocrisy makes communication impossible. You can't communicate. I mean, if someone is being hypocritical, if someone is hiding behind a facade, you can't have this important thing called communication. That's one of the reasons why it feels so weird when I was just clicking through the things, because there's something about this. This is communication. We may not be talking back and forth, but there's something that goes on here by the power of the Spirit that communication is occurring. And our God is a God of communication. I mean, he creates by the power of his you know, word. He saves humanity by his word. Right? I mean, our God is a God of communication. Provides us a written revelation. But when hypocrisy happens, you can't, have a, you can't communicate. So let's just take a very realistic example. It's like you and someone else, and you're trying to have a discussion. And you're trying to learn something about the person. If the person is being hypocritical, if the person is always hiding behind a false facade, right, this facade, if they're hiding behind someone that they're not, how can you ever communicate with the person? What's communication? Communication is that you learn something about me, the inside, that you can't just read. Like, you know, you could read off that screen, but it's not the same as when we communicate. We learn something very different, you know, the tone of our voice. So what we see here is... What hypocrisy does is it eliminates our ability to really learn something about someone. I mean, you, tell, you, know, you pretend to be a Christian, but, and you may you know, speak Christianese, but at the same time, even if I communicate with you, I won't learn who you really are because you're hiding behind this Christian you know, persona. In other words, it's like saying that you're a disciple but not living or loving like Jesus did. And there's a lot of those in the church. That's one of the things that people think about when they say, oh, I don't want to go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. And that's one of the things they're thinking about. People who, you know, in the public, they want to look as Christian as possible and they got their Facebook status that says that they're Christian. But in reality, I mean, it's like they're just hiding behind it like this fig tree really didn't have any fruit. He was just, you know, all leaves. Let's go to our next passage. Next section, fruitless temple. The first one was fruitless fig tree. And now we're going to talk about the fruitless temple. And that's in Mark chapter 11, verse 15 to 19. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 and 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So the fruitless temple. So here Jesus comes, and what does he do? He purifies the temple. No, Jesus doesn't hate tables and pigeons. Again, just like the fig tree, there's something bigger going on. And there's a reason why the three passages that we're going to look at today that this is wedged between the first and the second. This occurs right after the fig tree passage, as if to help you understand that the fig tree passage is really about what's going on in here, this episode. So here comes Jesus, and Jesus is coming to purify the worship of God. And do you guys remember in the very beginning of the gospel, we had this reference to uh, Malachi about the one who prepares the way in the wilderness for the Lord? Remember that passage? Let me read you the rest of it, because this is actually what's happening right here is, again, appealing to that. So you guys remember, if you guys forgot, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, you have, this, uh, you, have, you have the quotation that John is the one who comes to prepare the way for Yahweh, the Lord, and then Jesus shows up. 
and Jesus is being identified with this figure from Malachi that's being prophesied who's going to come after this individual prepares the way. Well, I'm going to read you, I read you that one verse about preparing the way. I'm going to read you the, the, the next three verses. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So we have here Jesus coming, the purifier. He's coming to purify the temple, and what does he do? He flips tables. This is one of the, probably the only places where we see Jesus get mad, you know, in, in a righteous sense. And he cleanses the table, flips tables, says, get out of here, pigeons. And he's basically telling them that they cannot profit off of the worship of God here. You know, one of the things that happened as a result of what um, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were doing, and, and this, is, this is why they had the tables. People, pilgrims would come to worship, and they would need to give like a sacrifice. They would need to pay like a temple tax or maybe make a sacrifice for their sins. And they had the tables there so they can exchange the currency from people that were coming from outside that had different currencies. And of course, you know, they would skim a little bit off the top, exchange rate, right? And, you know, you had this business going on. And Jesus was like, no, you can't profit off of the worship of God. So he goes in here and he purifies this to, re, you know, to reorder exactly, you know, where the heart's supposed to be in this type of worship. So he goes in there, he flips the tables, and then he makes this comment. He calls them a den of robbers. That's an insult. He calls them a den of robbers. That they're a bunch of thieves who are stealing from people. Stealing people and even preventing some of them from worshiping God. Because if you were a Gentile, you were left even further outside of the temple to do your currency exchange. So they were even barring access to the worship of God to the Gentiles. In Jeremiah 7.11... Prophet writes, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And here we have a literal manifestation. I mean, here you literally have Jesus seeing it with his eyes and it enraging him and then him going to purify the temple. But there are two other examples. Two, uh, well, there's one of my examples from history. One of my favorite examples from history is Martin Luther. You guys can tell by now probably that I'm a big fan of Martin Luther. I think he's, you know... Um, I mean, I think his heart was in the right place, but I also think he's just hilarious. I mean, I love reading him. It's like he's a Cuban. I mean, the way that he argues with his opponents, the way that he just went at it with, um, with the, corrupt, the corrupt papacy at, at the time. So let me tell you one of, this, one of my favorite Luther stories. So Luther goes to Rome. Okay, he's a monk at this time, and he's going to Rome, and he's going on pilgrimage. A good parallel with, with exactly what's happening in the temple. He goes over to Rome, and he's expecting that this is going to be the most awesome worship experience of his life. I mean, this is the highest form of worship that you could possibly have. So he gets there, okay, and he's absolutely shocked. He's absolutely shocked by what he finds. There's prostitutes in the street. They had a population of 100,000. They had, they had 6,800 prostitutes. Some of them even had outfits where they were dressed looking like nuns, okay? Not only that, the stuff that they sold in the streets made them even more aghast. They had, people had, you know, splinters from the cross, they had more splinters from the original cross that they alleged than it could actually form the, cr the cross. But they would sell it to you because they would claim that if you had this, you know, you would have these indulgences. 
the most, the weirdest one that I can remember, I'll tell you since we don't have any kids in here, but the weirdest one I remember is they even had, this is how disrespectful this is, they even had people alleging that they had bottled the breast milk of the Virgin Mary. That's how ridiculous, that's how ridiculous it was. You could buy yourself a splinter of the cross, a bone from the hand of John the Baptist, and you could buy yourself that bottle all there in the streets. But the height of you know, his experience, and to give you some more context, let me tell you the two popes before them. The two popes, Alexander uh, the Seventh, um, Alexander the Seventh, yes, no, Alexander the Sixth. Alexander the Sixth, right, he was the pope before Jesus' era, but this gentleman, you know, he went on all these campaigns, you know, to build stuff, and he just wanted to be like this political guy. But my favorite story about him is that he had like four kids, you know, he had four, the pope, you know, they're supposed to be, but he had four kids, and he appointed one of them when he was a teenager, as a cardinal. That's a big deal. Okay? You can't just appoint people as a cardinal. This was called simony. This was the practice of selling high offices you know, uh, to people. So he gave his, his, one of his sons um, the, office, uh, the office of cardinal when he was a teenager. Well, you know what? The son ended up doing it. He ended up quitting being a cardinal, and then he ended up raising an army, and through political assassination and, uh, and intrigue and all this stuff, he took over North Italy. You guys ever hear of the book called The Prince by Machiavelli? The Prince is the book that starts um, the modern study of political science. It is the book that, sh- that turns from classic political theory uh, and, and the guy who wrote it. And the book is all about basically, you know, forget morality. You just have to do what you have to do. You just have to do what, you know, what's in the interest of power, the interest of the prince. And I mean, that's the basic thesis. But he wrote that book after that you know, teenage cardinal. Like, that was his inspiration. And the individual who came after him, he was known as the war pope. You know, he, he was waging all these military campaigns. But that gives you the context. But back to Luther. Luther goes up to the, uh, the, Scala, the Scala Sancta. Does anyone know what that is? The Scala Sancta, the, the sacred steps. These were alleged to be the steps that um, St. Uh, Helena brought you know, to Rome that Jesus walked up during the Passion. Like the very steps that Jesus walked up, they claim that these were it. So if you got to walk up these on your knees, okay, the, the, you know, the papal bull said that if you walked up this on your knees for every step that you walked up on your knees, you got a year of indulgence. Uh, later it was changed to seven years. So every single step that you went up, you got seven years of indulgences, a penal indulgence. That means you, know, you commit a sin, although it's forgiven, uh, in Roman Catholicism there's still some price that you pay either here on earth, a temporal price, for venial sins, or when you get to purgatory. That's why they have the development of purgatory. You still have to pay. You know, like you committed a crime, you have to pay for these sins. So Luther's up there, and Luther is just, you know, this is supposed to be the height of my spiritual life. He's crawling on his knees, ignoring, like, in the streets, people trying to sell all those things, and then he finally gets to the top, and when he gets to the top, he just hears a voice in his head, and the voice says, by faith, right? By faith. He's like, what do you mean by faith? You know, the just will live by faith. And then, you know, you guys know the rest of the story of Martin Luther. But there we see a very realistic example of people profiting, the whole practice back then of indulgences, to, you know, build um, elaborate pieces. This is actually where all of the pieces from Michelangelo and those individuals, they really came out of this era of, of um, the medieval Renaissance period because these popes and these um, cardinals would get all this money from selling indulgences to hire you know, uh, people like Michelangelo build. So here you have an incident of people on the street just making money off of the worship of God. A contemporary example from today is when you turn on the television and you see stuff about, like, 
you know, you know, prosperity gospel, you know, give me your seed, multiply it a thousandfold. You know, I remember we had this one guy in Miami called Jose Luis Miranda. He claimed he was the Holy Spirit reincarnate, then he claimed he was the Apostle Paul reincarnate. Of course, what do you think ended up happening? He claimed that he was Jesus Christ reincarnate. And he had a huge following, as well as a whole bunch of real nice Rolexes. He drove every single type of fancy car you can imagine, and he had 25 bodyguards. Um, he said that he died and he was going to resurrect. No one's seen him ever since. He's probably living somewhere in Central America right, off of all the millions that he made because people would give him presents. That's another contemporary example. Prosperity gospel. People profiting off of the gospel. By the way, if you enjoy this preaching, you can donate $100 <laughs> to Leonard O. Goenaga's baby fund to help me pay for my future babies because they are expensive. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We'll start having a second, a second, a little back. No. But towards the end, what is the temple supposed to be? A house of prayer for all the nations. All the nations. He's taking that from Isaiah 56, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So Jesus is saying here that this is supposed to be a house of prayer. All right, we finally arrived into the discussion of prayer. Bet on our discussion of hypocrisy, this introduces the second sense of hypocrisy. So the word hypocrisy, what does it mean? You know, hiding behind a mask, talking through a mask. Another sense, the sense that I like, is two-faced. You know, when you're wearing a mask, you have two faces. But one way you may have heard it is talking out of two sides of your mouth or talking with two mouths. You know, talking from two different directions. The sense here is when someone says something over here, but then they say the complete opposite behind over here. You know, they're two-faced. You know, like the Batman criminal, you know, he has these totally contrasting personalities. And that's what makes him, you know, crazy. And a, and a, and a, and a good, uh, good nemesis. He's, just, he's unpredictable. Because he says this over here, and then he says this over here. But the idea here is being two-faced. So this can also stretch beyond simply saying something and then saying the complete opposite. What else can it be? You say this, but then you do the complete opposite thing. So now, the way that this is def different from the first sense of hypocrisy, the first sense of hypocrisy is I want this image, but I don't do what the image is supposed to be doing. The second sense of hypocrisy is I say I'm going to do this, but I actually do the complete opposite. Yeah, these two forms. And why I think that's interesting as an introduction to prayer is because a lot of times when we think of prayer, we think of that sense of hypocrisy like I can say this, but then I can say the complete opposite. But in, like we see with hypocrisy, you can commit hypocrisy when you say something and say the complete opposite or when you say something and do the complete opposite. Well, a lot of times when we think of prayer, we restrict prayer to just the verbal. But as we see here in the temple imagery, prayer is not simply something we emit from our lips, it's a way that we live. You know, and that's how we get introduced to the relationship between hypocrisy and prayer, because prayer is worship. That's what the temple represents, the presence of God. The temple represents the worship of God, the presence of God. Jesus is coming here to cleanse and purify worship, you know, because the Israelites are worshiping themselves. The reason why the, the Pharisees want, didn't want Jesus to stop is because they were benefiting economically and sociopolitically from the, the tabling, you know, from the exchanging. And Jesus is saying the same thing that, that was happening in the Old Testament. Stop worshiping yourselves. Worship your God on high. And this introduces this language of prayer. 
what's interesting is that it's for all the nations in the plural, for all the people groups, not just for the Gentiles. It's for everyone. Jesus is here noting that the pattern of Scripture is that worship is for the world. So we go into our last passage, fruitful disciples, fruitful disciples. We looked at the fruitless fig tree. We looked at, and that was our first understanding of hypocrisy. We looked at our, oh, and I forgot to mention. Oh, I, I have to mention this real quick. So hypocrisy prevents communication. If you don't have communication, you can't have communion, this relationship. You know, we could, we could commune with one another. Commune with God. And then if you can't commune, you can't have community. We're, I'm hinting towards the first and second great commandment because that's what I'll talk about in the final sermon of this series. But I want to make sure I bring that so you can see how important hypocrisy is. It prevents communion and communication and community. So we go to our last text here, Fruitful Disciples. Mark chapter 11, verses 20 to 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, what, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Fruitful disciples. So what happened to the fig tree? It withered. So did the leaves just die? The wheat, did the leaves just fall off? No, it withered all the way to the roots. Does anyone, let me see, does anyone know why roots is an important word? Can anyone remember anything from the Old Testament on why roots is so important? Ah, I mean, that generations, I mean, the, you go to Genesis, Genesis 3.15, by, you know, you know, by your seed, will come the one who will crush the head of the serpent, seed, generation, the line of David, the root, the shrewd, right? This whole language hits right at these Pharisees because they think that they are the proper inheritance, they're the improper inheritors of this generational line. So here we see that the judgment has been cast upon them to the very roots, you know, the image there of the depth of this judgment. And it's interesting because when the disciples make the note, when they note this, what is, how does Jesus respond? What does he say? What's the first thing Jesus says? What does that have to do with fig trees being withered to the root? Why would Jesus respond like that? Have faith. I mean, this is interesting to note that this is his response to this hypocritical, non-figging tree, the non-fig-bearing tree. He turns to his disciples and he says, have faith. Have faith. This is at the core of what Luther was trying to get to. Faith. I mean, that's where it starts. That's where hypocrisy is eliminated, is faith. I mean, that is where the Christian experience begins, in faith. Salvation is founded in faith, right? Healing is founded in faith. As if to say that we should have faith, that that won't happen to us. Faith that God can alleviate from us this type of hypocrisy and can actually bear within us fruit, that the Spirit can produce the fruit within us in faith. Now, 
We get to this next passage, which can be easily abused. Remember the contemporary example that I gave you of people making money off of the worship of God? This is one of the places they point to. You can move mountains. All right, someone pray right now that we become owners of this property and that we can build the church. Who wants to do it? No? Oh, so you guys don't have faith? Well, you guys got to all go to vacation Bible school. They'll teach you all about it, and they'll give you songs. I still remember the songs from like 10 years ago. A, wiki, B, wiki, C, wiki. So, obviously what he doesn't mean here is that just because you pray, something's going to happen, right? So first of all, mountain in the Old Testament was a symbol in, in Israelite literature for doing something that is near impossible. Okay, so we have a strong symbol here for doing something that is nearly impossible. And you find that in places like Isaiah 40, verse 4, if you're taking notes. So whoever says to this mountain, move. In other words, you can do something that is nearly impossible in prayer. Right? Whatever you ask in prayer, he says, whatever you ask in prayer. Now, does that mean that if you pray for something, it's going to happen? No, because there are restrictions. Places like James chapter 4, verse 3, he notes that you have to have godly motives. Your motives have to be godly. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. And then it also has to be in line with God's will. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And what's the main image we get out of here? You know, Lottie can ask me, one of the things she likes to ask me for is like those um, trail mix, the ones with the chocolate and the peanut butter. She can ask me for it all she wants, but I'm not going to give it to her before bed because I know better. And we have an image here of communing with our God, communication with our God, of a parental figure. Remember, we talked about Father's Day, what makes a good father. Here we have a father who knows exactly what to give his children. He knows what to give them. And even then, in Christ, he's given us everything we need, everything. And that's why I think it's really interesting that we have a God here who supplies for us in full you know, all things together for good, and that he will graciously give us all things as we see in Romans chapter 8, God is a supplier of our needs. But he ultimately answers, answers our fundamental question. That's why I pointed out that one of the ways you can ask a question is you can start with the verb and then get to the subject. I like that image of the subject coming later. You know, that At the beginning is what needs to be done, the verb. And then you get over here to the subject as one way to ask a question. What does that mean? What that means is that God has provided for us the answer for every question that we can have. And there is a lot of ways to ask questions. There are ways to ask questions where the way you respond is yes or no. There are ways to ask questions where the way you respond is that you choose something from a list. There are ways to respond to a question with another question. So a lot of times when we ask questions, we may only be thinking like yes or no. Should I get married to this person? And we're expecting that the answer is going to come in the yes or no format. But I do know that God does answer for sure. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful that God gives us the scripture is that that's one of the ways he answers our questions. Another way that he answers our questions is in communion, is in the fellowship, the proclamation of the word, the discipleship amongst us, the love of the, of the brotherhood, the sisterhood. We get our questions answered. Am I, am I in sin? But I do know one question, one yes or no question, that Jesus, that God always answers in the affirmative. And I want you to know, think about Luther and his experience. Think about the Pharisees and their experience in light of this one response. When you ask God to forgive your sin and you're in genuine repentance, you know what the Lord says? He says, yes, you're forgiven. 
and go and forgive others. Always remember that that always comes. Not because you know, you know, you have to merit your faith. You have to do something to earn it. No, because God has already forgiven you. And that is what I like to think about when He says that you can move mountains. I don't, I don't care. You know, let's start a prayer campaign to raise money, and we're going to pray, and God's going to give us a new building. Well, He might. He might bless us with a new building. And if He doesn't, if He does, oh, we'll be grateful. I mean, but that is small breadcrumbs compared to the fact that I can look upon my life. And see the sins that the Lord has forgiven me of? Me? And that I'm able to be up here and proclaim the gospel? That is greater than moving any mountain. I guarantee you. The Lord's grace. And it's sufficient. And then what he secures for us for all of eternity. That he can call us children. And then another one he always says yes to is if we turn to him and we say, Lord, may I follow you? May I worship you? May I enjoy what it is to be truly human? So, hypocrisy... We looked at hypocrisy, it distorts communication, but it's not supposed to be, it's not to be confused with, you know, someone being a repentant sinner, because everyone in here is a sinner. Everyone. If you're not a sinner, you don't need to be here. Right? You know, you can just go home. You're good. You can start your own religion. But, for everyone else, we're all repentant sinners. That does not mean you're a hypocrite. What makes you a hypocrite is that you don't have this repentance that you distort this communication, this communion with the fellowship and communion with the Lord. So in conclusion, our summary. Fruitless fig tree, hypocrisy number one, you're pretending to be a Christian, but you're not bearing any fruit. You're like that fig tree. All leaves and no figs. Fruitless temple, what we saw there is there's a second way to be hypocritical. You say you're going to do one thing, but you do the complete opposite. Almost as if the tree is growing rotten fruit. Now it's really good for nothing. It's actually now an even greater burden. So if, if you're a Christian and you're, and you're saying you're going to do one thing and you're doing the complete opposite, you're even worse than that first one. You're even worse than the tree that doesn't give you fruit because now you're giving rotten fruit. You stink. But what we also saw there is that prayer in that whole idea of the temple is something that we do. It's not only something that we say. And by the way, how wonderful is it? Remember my, the sermon clicking through there? Could you, you guys have the opportunity to speak to the Lord God and to have conversation with him and communion with him. You can talk to him. You know, that's like the parallel there. One of the reasons why we, we like you know, proclamation is because we have communication here. And you can do that with the Lord on high. You can do that with God. You have straight access. You don't have to climb any stairs. You can talk to him. And then fruitful disciples. We're called to be fruitful. The spirit is given to us. And by faith, we can accomplish all these things. God looks for our interest. The Lord takes care of you. And he's already given you everything you need. When you realize that one thing, that the Lord has provided for you in abundance, all your problems will go away. Now, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel. And I'm not saying that, you know, you're going to achieve that because you're only going to achieve that in paradise. But the reality is, is when we get to heaven and we're purified from our sin and we're no longer burdened by these entrapments, what you're going to see is that the Lord is sufficient. He's sufficient for all things. That's one thing I have to remind myself every single week. The Lord is my all and my all. That he is Yahweh. I, I mean, he's provided for me in full. How can he provide for you more than to die on the cross for your sins? So we'll close with this. A prayer. And it talks about hypocrisy. And it's a prayer that a lot of you guys know. And it's a prayer that he's using to show you how it's modeled. So keeping in mind our principles of communication, of hypocrisy, of prayer, of disciples as being 
the fruitful ones, the ones who are in living in prayer, living in worship, not being hypocrites because they want to worship God by loving each other. Look how Jesus talks when he's teaching them how to pray. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray for your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. But pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, how does the prayer start? By a recognition, recognition of God's sovereignty, His holiness, as if to remind you, like, this, like the question, the, the noun comes after the verb, you are second. Like those videos, you are second. God is God, and he's at the center of the universe. And I get to play this part. Oh, Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy above holies. Your kingdom come, not mine, I don't want my own kingdom, but your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Father, can you take care of us? And forgive us of our debts. Forgive us of our sins. That is the mountain to be moved. As we also have forgiven as our debtors, as we have forgiven those. In other words, you forgive us and let us be a conduit. Let us be a channel for your mercy and your love. Let us be the presence of God in the city. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you can close your head. Ooh, don't close your head. <laughs> Maybe now you can close your head. No. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. Bow your eyes and close your mind. No. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that we are able to communicate in so many forms, Lord, that we're able to laugh, that we're able to ask questions, that we're able to um, ask for forgiveness from one another, and that you, by your Spirit, empower us to do so. Lord, if we are harboring ill feelings against our brother and our sister, Lord, may your Spirit come upon us in fullness, Lord, that he may come upon us and convict us of our sins so that we may have restored relationships, because we know, Lord, that you want what's in our best interest. When you tell us, Lord, to do something, when you direct us in a, in a way, it's not so that we can earn your favor. Jesus has already done that on our behalf. But Lord, you want to see us live the good lives. You want to see us taste what it's going to be like in heaven. And we are privileged to taste that delicious fruit here and now and to be fruitful and to share it with those around us. In your name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.